We're now going to um, track back and, and pick up um, Acts 1. Theopolis, I wrote all, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you in heaven will come back in the same way and you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Along with, the, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Ju Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, 
There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language Al-Kadama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Sally. So we're coming to some studies in the book of Acts. And what I wanted to look at was prayer, um, prayer in the book of Acts. Um, if I just have the start of my PowerPoint. I want to look at prayer in the book of Acts, um, which is maybe going to be a bit of a challenge. But you have to divide it up somehow because I don't think we'd get all the way through the book of Acts. Certainly, certainly not in a, in a term. And we just remember to um, remember Mark is preaching at Stanwell this morning, so we just remember him um, as well and pray that the Lord blesses him in, in that time over there. So how do you feel about waiting? The next slide. How do you feel about, about waiting in general, waiting for things? Um, we live in this era of the instant you can have a box set on demand. I think it's really interesting, like, they have this way, don't they, of kind of teasing you with stuff, and then they give you the first episode, and maybe the second, and then quite often they give you all the rest, because they don't reckon on your patience to wait for it all to come. You can have kind of like same day or next day delivery on a, on a kind of vast range of goods. Yeah, do find the sermon notes if you want them there around about the place. And then, of course, some poor soul on a scooter or a push bike will fetch you noodles in the rain so that you can have a, a ready-made meal within about 40 minutes. It's an amazing era which we live in. It's the era of the instant. But I'm not sure that sets us up very well. When we were buying our house, we had to wait for the opposite ends of the chain to agree to complete completion dates. It's one of those things that was entirely out of our hands. There was nothing we could do but wait. And it was only a matter of weeks but the sense of powerless nearly drove me berserk. I know they say house buying is, uh, is stressful, and it is. So how do you like waiting? 
probably not very much. How, what is it? Are you waiting for something that you're wanting the Lord to do? So when Jesus says to the 11, and there are only 11 of them now, wait for the gift my father has promised, how do you think they feel? I thought it was really interesting, wasn't it, in that video? They were kind of like, they were saying they were all waiting in Jerusalem, they were all like this. Um, in the little video, they all looked like they were standing around a bit, a, a bit bored. Is that what they were like? Or more importantly, what did they do? So you heard them, you heard that in the middle of that reading? Jesus has said, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father has promised. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find the answer to that um, from the book of Acts. And so we needed to get a little bit of background. What is, uh, what is Acts about? Who is, it, um, who is it for? I mean, I think you know that it's written by Luke, the same Luke, Luke who wrote the, the third gospel. <clears throat> and Luke writes both these books to this guy called Theophilus. The name doesn't give anything away. He could be Roman, he could be Jewish, but he's probably Luke's patron. In other words, he's the guy who's supporting Luke. He's probably, in a sense, kind of like his employer. And Theophilus is clearly either a new Christian or he's an interested outsider. But he's a high-status guy in the Roman world. He has to kind of fit in. Um, with the Roman world. He has to know how Christianity works then in the Roman world. But equally, he's, he has a knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. It's quite possible that he's, he might not be a synagogue member, but he might be one of those people who, who associates around the synagogue because he knows um, the Old Testament. So Theophilus is an interesting guy. And Luke writes his gospel and Acts to help Theophilus make sense of what's happened around him this Jesus movement um, that has grown up. And Luke knows, we know that from the introduction to his first, uh, his first book, that others have written about Jesus, and so Luke clearly knows about um, Mark, possibly the other Gospels as well. But he wants to put it in a shape that's going to make sense to Theophilus, who has to live in the, Roman, the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. So maybe it's like in our day and age, Theophilus might be a high-ranking civil servant, or he might be like a, an ambassador um, who, who travels. And Luke is like his personal therapist, um, or his personal doctor, um, who travels with him. So Luke is kind of in this middle kind of place. Um, he's, he, he knows what, what happens in, the, in, in the, the upper strata of society, but he's not up there himself. So Luke's gospel a little bit different um, to the others in that really Luke writes historically. He's writing history. Um, and he's writing good history by the standards of the day. He's investigating cause and effect. But he's not writing apologetically. He's not trying to persuade Theophilus of something. Theophilus, in many ways, is already persuaded. He just wants to explain it. And we're grateful that he did because Acts is unique in the Bible. It gives us a bridge between Jesus and Peter and Paul in particular, but the, but the generations that follow. It links the, the Gospels uh, and the work of Jesus um, with the letter writers. So it's a crucial kind of link between um, the, the first bit and most of the rest of, of the New Testament. 
then what's it about? Well, as you go along, I want you to look out for some things. And the primary one is this, that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone in, in Luke's, Luke's eyes. So Luke can look up to the high stratas. It's for, it's for the posh people. He can look down. Um, it's, it's for the poor people. It's for the slaves. Jesus is for Jews. It's really interesting that I, I never, would never have spotted this from Acts, neither would you. But in the original Greek, he can write in an Old Testamenty kind of style when he needs to and when he's talking to Jews, and he can write in just an ordinary Greek kind of style um, later on in Acts when he's kind of writing to, um, writing in a kind of, in a non-Jew context. And we see all through Acts that the gospel goes to the Jews, and we see Paul always kind of starting his ministry in the synagogues, and yet going beyond the Jews uh, as well. The gospel is for everyone. And like in his gospel, we find uh, Jesus is for men and for women. We find Paul going to the place of prayer and finding Lydia and then going to Lydia's house in Acts 16. And Jesus is for all nations and for all nationalities. And so you'll see this as well, that we're not going to focus on this in Acts, but um, Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We'll find that happening in Acts as well, that the gospel is going outwards. Jesus is for, is for everyone. <clears throat> what is it about? Is the next question. Well, the mechanism of the gospel going out, then it's, it's about this message spreading. And the message is just a, a simple form of words, isn't it? It's a story, it's the truth about Jesus, it's the gospel, and it spreads. And it spreads essentially by word of mouth, one person to another, um, across, the, across those nations. But it's essential that the power comes from the, comes from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has died, he is raised again, and Peter says he, he's now um, in heaven with the Father, and he's now poured out what you see in here. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes in power on the fledgling church in Acts 2, and then again he comes repeatedly. So I want you to look out for the word. In Luke, I want you to look out for the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And one of the things we're going to have to wrestle with as we go along is, is how to interpret Luke. Because this is a narrative. In other words, it's, it's an account. It's an account of events um, as they go along. And narrative is not necessarily normative, if you can get your heads around that. Narrative is not necessarily normative. A story isn't necessarily telling you what to do. So Luke is telling you what has happened, and he's telling you why it happened, but he doesn't necessarily say, copy this. So that's going to be one of the things we're going to wrestle with as we, as we go through Acts. Are we meant to copy all of this or not? I mean, if we weren't supposed to learn something from it, then why would have Luke written it in the first place? So there's obviously stuff to learn, and there is stuff to do, but you have to read it all intelligibly, intelligently and, and, and thoughtfully. Sometimes it's just a record of the history. This is what happens which gets us from A to B in history. How are we going to interpret? 
Well, we're going to, one of the ways of interpreting Luke is actually to read the speeches. Um, so it's not going to help us along the way because we're not going to do that. Okay, if we're going to get through Acts, we have to kind of, we have to edit, and we're not particularly going to look at the speeches. So if you want to understand it, you're going to have to do that on your own um, because those who are speaking kind of interpret what's going on. But we need to look at repeated patterns. We need to think, look at the things that happen again and again in Acts, and then we can start to assume that that's a pattern um, that we should follow. And we have to look out for whether the approval of God is on something um, or not. So let's get stuck in. We've got the um, disciples here. Next slide. On one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, so this is Jesus, he, you realise he, he appeared and rose again over a period of 40 days. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised in the Holy Spirit. That wasn't really my intention to get into what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I was asked about it recently and I think we need to just <coughs> pause and, <coughs> excuse me and have a little look and let's have a think about what happens here then in Acts 2 and I think as we said earlier on historically this is a is a one-off because no other person or group I think repeats um, this miracle where they all go out and speak in known languages which don't require interpretation interestingly when you get into the gift of tongues in the rest of the New Testament quite often it, it, uh, uh, Paul would say it needs an interpretation a miraculous tongue needs a miraculous interpretation so that's a different thing that's happening later on and also the tongues of fire and the sound of the rushing wind they're not repeated even within Acts so there is a sense in which this moment where the Holy Spirit is given to the church um, is, is a one-off. But at the same time, every Christian is baptised in the Holy Spirit. So Peter stands up. Um, we, we didn't read it, but we heard it on the video. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian, the starting point of their Christian life is they repent and they're being baptized, as, as the three were last week. And what do they receive? Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. One writer says, throughout Acts, the presence of the Spirit is seen as the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It, it is what makes a person a Christian. So a person is a Christian if they have the Holy Spirit um, within their lives. It happens once, happens when you become a Christian, and that is baptism of the Holy Spirit. So historically, Acts 2 is a one-off. And personally speaking, Holy Spirit baptism is a one-off. So one writer says the basic act of receiving the Spirit can be described as being baptised or filled 
but baptize is never used of subsequent experiences. And he goes on to say, the, now, the phrase baptism with the Spirit does not occur in the New Testament. So baptism in the Spirit is, is just this, is what happens when you become um, a Christian. In the same way, that's why baptism, water baptism, is only once. Because there is only one point at which we plunge you into water, and that's a sign that you become a Christian. Because that's a sign that you've been, in a sense, plunged into the Holy Spirit, and you are one with Christ. Now, throughout Acts, it does get confusing because different groups had different experiences, and, and some of them, we'll, we'll, we'll test them as we go along, uh, have, were baptized first, um, and then received the Holy Spirit, and the other way around. But I think we just have to assume, as one writer says, Luke's not trying to give us a detailed description of chronology. He's not trying to give us a detailed pattern of, of, of when somebody is baptised. It was all higgledy-piggledy, let's just say that, in Acts. Some people were baptised and they never actually received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they had to receive the Holy Spirit, become Christian later on. And some people the other way around. But we can and we should be repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a little word study for you to do. You can go away and put baptize in your, you know, your um, Bible gateway or look it up in a concordance if you like the feel of paper. Uh, some of us still do. Um, or, and you can go and look up filled um, in, in the book of Acts. Because what happens is, this happens repeatedly. So people are filled with the Spirit for, for, for specific moments. So Acts 1, um, no, Acts 2, verse 8, surely. Anyway, no. Don't know where that reference is. It's got the wrong reference. But it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers, elders of the people. So I think that's supposed to be actually... Th where is that? Anyway, you can look up all the verse 8s of all the chapters and work out where I've got that wrong. But there was a moment where Peter needed to speak and he was filled with the Spirit and he spoke. And then you know when um, Peter and John, they, they healed the guy when they were going to the temple um, and they were called up in front of the, uh, the Jewish authorities and then they go back um, and the church... Praise, and what happens, we'll come to it, we'll look at this in a week or two's time. When they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So there were specific moments where believers needed to be empowered and they were, uh, and the Holy Spirit of God came um, and, and filled them. And particularly those two were, were issues where they needed to speak and the Spirit of God came upon them. But equally, we can and should be filled with the Spirit as a matter of course. We should all be filled with the Spirit all of the time. So when the, the, six, uh, the seven are chosen as deacons in Acts 6, it said, who do they choose? They're to choose men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So it's possible to be full of the Spirit um, all of the time. In fact, I think it's a condition of leadership. 
Deacons there in Acts 6, but I'll make an argument for elders as well later on. Barnabas is described, who's sent off with Paul on mission, is described as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5, don't get drunk on wine, Paul says, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that's what we need. Need to be filled with the Spirit. Only I think we're going to be a little bit surprised as we work this out, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So in Ephesians 5, Paul, Paul tells the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. He said, rather than getting drunk, he says, don't get merry, you know, don't get merry on alcohol. Just have some joy of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on, what, do the, what are the church to do? They're, they're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a mark of being filled with the Spirit. Don't know whether you realize that. Paul's whole argument, the rest of Ephesians 5, is when you be filled with, the, filled with the Spirit, is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's also really clear in Acts that the person who's already been filled with the Spirit, so that's Stephen, he was one of the deacons. You can, you can catch this up, you can read it along. In Acts 6, he's martyred, he's killed um, in, in chapter 7. But at the, at the end of his martyrdom, full of the Spirit, he sees Jesus at the right-hand side of God. So you start to get this picture of being filled. Filled can happen for a specific moment, but ideally, filled happens all of the time. And even somebody who's filled all of the time can have a specific moment where they need to be filled and, and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is critical. Without the Holy Spirit, we're not Christians. And the Holy Spirit is critical to church. And it's critical to mission. It's critical if the church is going to do something. So the disciples are waiting. This next slide, thanks. They're told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. What do they do? Well, in Acts 1.14, we're told that they join together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So what do they do in the meantime? They get on with the routine business. And key to the routine business is to pray. And then when does the Spirit come? Acts 2. It comes when they were together in one place. I guess they're not lounging around. I guess that even when they've been together on the day of Pentecost, they've been praying. And this repeatedly happens in the book of Acts. This is one of the interesting things. Again, if you want to search it up, do a word study. Look up pray, pray and prayer in the book of Acts. Is that God works when people are praying. Not just, not just when you pray God works, but God works in, in that moment when people are praying. So an angel appears to Cornelius when he's, when he's at prayer, when he's in prayer. Later on, Peter has a revelation as he goes to prayer. Peter, Paul and Silas are miraculously released from prison as they are praying. And Paul tells in, in Acts 22 that he was given a warning by the Lord when he was praying. 
It's not just things as you know, if you pray for things, things happen. But it's also things happen when you are in prayer. God speaks. God reveals himself. God changes circumstances as you are in prayer. So prayer is critical. How does prayer feature in your life? Where does prayer feature in your life? Personal prayer, I assume you have some time of personal prayer and Bible reading. Or actually we should say that it is prayerful Bible reading and Bible-infused prayer. That would be the ideal. I assume that you're doing that. Well, actually, one of the reasons, if I'm really honest, that we read big, chunk, big chunks of Scripture on Sunday morning is that I assume that none of you are not doing that. And that's a shame. But there's prayer in small groups, home groups. Prayer goes on in our home groups. We recognise that lots of prayer goes on in home groups. Prayer goes on on Sunday services. We pray together. Prayer happens in prayer meetings. Tonight, six o'clock. And let me put it like this to you. It's a contradiction to want the Lord to act in your life or in anybody else's life and not spend time in prayer. It's just a contradiction in terms, I want to put it the other way around. To be not praying is to show that you don't want the Lord. It's the same with coming to the Bible. To be not reading the Bible is showing that you don't want the Lord to speak. Okay, so if you've got an issue with this, you're finding a Bible reading a chore, um, or you find prayer um, a, a chore, the answer is not simply to grit your teeth and, and do it, though it's better to do it than to not do it. There is a deeper question that you need to answer, which is, why do I not really want the Lord in my life? I'm not speaking of something that I've not experienced. If you don't want prayer and you don't want Bible reading, then you have to, as a, and you call yourself a Christian, then you have to answer the question, why is it that I don't really want the Lord to be active in my life? At university, I would walk past the letter racks on my way to breakfast in our halls of residence in the morning in a desperate hope there'd be a personal letter for me. But did I write any letters? No. Why not? That's a complicated question. Why do you not really want the Lord to be active in your life? That's my question to you. And the answer is probably... Well, that's a complicated question. But it's one you need to answer. Maybe fear of rejection plays a part, all kinds of things. But that's my question to you, and that's the question you need to answer. It's a question that only you can answer, and you need to go to him and wrestle with him about it. It takes a bit of thought. What's really going on in my heart? You have to kind of catch yourself unawares and see what your heart is doing. What are the basic movements of your heart? Where is your heart going? But the other thing that they're getting on with, so they're getting on with prayer while they're waiting. But actually the interesting thing is they're getting on with sorting out leadership. They're down by one, Judas. It was prophesied 
And the appropriate thing to do, they understand from Psalm 109, is to replace him. So David says about his enemy, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. From what Jesus has told them, they understand that they need to replace him. Why do they need to be 12 rather than 11? Well, partly because I think they're told, the 12 are told that they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So they need to be 12. I think interestingly on Revelation, there are 12 names around the foundations of the city, the city of the heavenly Jerusalem is actually all, the, all of us, isn't it? It's all the people. Um, but there are 12 names on the, on the foundation. Just, I don't know, 11 seems a bit lopsided, doesn't it? But anyway, there need to be 12. They know the qualifications. We need to choose somebody who's been with us the whole time. Jesus was amongst us from John's baptism to when Jesus was taken from us. Two guys fit the bill, <clears throat> Joseph and Matthias, and then they pray. And they pray, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over the apostle ministry. And then, this is the interesting bit, they cast lots. They, they flip a coin. Now, here we kind of apply our Luke principle. Is this a pattern to be copied or is this a one-off? And I think, well, actually, I don't know of, of any church that that works like this, but I'll come back to it in a minute. Because it's an Old Testament way of making decisions. When they chose a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats chosen, and one was um, the goat which they, uh, you know, the high priest prayed, and it took the sins of Israel away. There were two goats, and one was chosen by Lot. Effectively, I don't, it doesn't tell us exactly how they do that. Maybe there's a long stick and a short stick, or stones of different colours. When the when the, when the 12 tribes were given the, the, the land in Canaan, it was distributed by lots. So there were these times when you were making a decision um, that needed to be kind of Im, impartial um, and also which was beyond human knowing, then, then they cast lots. And the sailors on Jonah's boat, do you remember that story? They cast lots to find out who was the guilty party, who was bringing, bringing the, the storm on them. But as I say, I don't know of any church that kind of chooses its leaders by lot. And I think one of the significant strands is as we go through Acts, and I would encourage you to read Acts, I'll put you out a little reading plan, which, has been, which I think is really helpful. It's written by another church. You find a lot of choosing and commissioning of leaders is core to Acts. Getting the right leaders is critical to the growth of the church uh, and the spread of the gospel. So they choose deacons in Acts 6 so the apostles can teach um, and these guys will look after the, the practical business, um, the bread, but they're to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I think that is the New Testament um, way of choosing leaders. They choose missionaries. Um, Paul and Barnabas to start off with in Acts 13, send them off. They, they appoint elders in the churches in, in Acts 14. So I think in the New Testament, the, the choosing of leaders is, is choosing people who are full of the Spirit. But actually, I think we haven't got time for this this morning, but go back and read 1 Timothy 3 again about the qualifications for elders. And I think we've got to rewrite what we understand by being filled with the Spirit. We think it's about going like this, you know, when, when we're singing. But what is, a, what is a, an elder to be? 
above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages family well. And actually deacons in the same way are to be worthy of respect sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith. Now, is that what you thought being filled with the Spirit was? Maybe we've got to think again. When we're full of the Spirit, we're going to be other people-centered, Spirit-fruit-showing people. Not necessarily waving your hands in worship. Though if you want to wave your hands in worship, that's a good thing. And I'm very happy to see people being happy in worship. But, coming back to tossing the coin, there are some decisions which are so finely balanced that you don't know which one is right. So in this one, there are two men, they're equally qualified. How do they know which is right? And the church, they could have sat there and gone, well, there's this guy, Matthias, he was there, he was there a couple of days longer in the beginning, but, oh, this other guy, he, he was there a couple of days later on, and they could, and... It's really interesting in organisations, and this was something which Ernie spotted and is really helpful, is spend a lot of time discussing the very finely balanced decisions. When actually what they need to do is that this decision is so finely balanced you just need to, you just need to choose. I found that a really helpful principle. It's a helpful principle for all kinds of things, but, but in, in Christian work as well. We can spend a load of time do we buy a Henry or a Dyson for the youth hall? If it ever comes back into use again. Or something else, you know, where you look at the job it needs to do, it needs to do this. You look at the specs of each machine, they do that. But at the end of the day, they look both equally good at it. We can't know, Lord, which is the, which one was built by somebody on the Friday afternoon and which was built by somebody working really well. I'm, I'm confused. Well, just at that point, you toss a coin and you choose. And you move on. I think there are moments, even in the Christian life, for tossing a coin. Possibly not when choosing leaders, but if you have two absolutely, if you have two absolutely, I mean, if we had two equally equipped people, we'd have them both. But obviously that wasn't a possibility when there was only one spot to fill in the 12. Where does that leave us? Okay, final slide. It leaves us always praying for the next generation of leaders. Always praying for the next generation of leaders. I had, I just, I can't even remember where this happened, but I remember it happening. I kind of had a real sense of the Lord saying to me, um, if you are not developing your successor, then you are just standing in the way. Whoa. It came as a bit of a, a wake-up call, but I think it goes. I think it's worth thinking about in all areas of Christian life. So in Nathan's church, Nathan's church is a, is a church plant. It's been planted by uh, another church in Worcester, and they're looking to kind of plant again. They're always, always developing the next generation of leaders. And I would challenge you, wherever you are in leadership in church, where is the next generation of leaders coming from? And if you're not developing your successes, then are you just actually standing in the way? That's a very scary thing. 
Where is the next person to do this? That's one thing. It's one thing we should be praying about, constantly praying about, okay? You can come and pray about this at 6 p.m. tonight. I, I, what I don't understand is, we've, we've, I've kind of preached this kind of sermon before, um, and I would, have, I would have assumed that you would go away and your application will be, great, I've got an opportunity to, to put this into practice at 6 p.m. tonight. Now, it's maybe you had other plans, but it's been in the diary. Um, uh, but there seems to be this assumption that, well, actually, this doesn't apply to me. As long as there are a handful, that we do that quite a lot in the Christian life. As long as there's somebody doing that in church, then it's okay if I don't. Well, it's not. Okay, you can't say as long as there are eight there or ten there, as there were last time, who are doing this, then I don't have to. It's not okay. So you've got an opportunity to, to put this into practice. So I put out a certain number of chairs last time and somebody said, oh, I thought I would have been much more ambitious than that. And actually, uh, I was right. I was right. I put out two more chairs than there were people. Make me wrong, please, tonight. At, at some point, that has to change if the church is, um, is to do mission and, and, and to go forward. Something has to change, and it has to really be changing you, and for you to stop saying, I'm not, I'm, this doesn't include me. Because it does. Um, I want us to pray. The other thing that we pray is, is that we are filled with the Spirit. And we'll pray that tonight. Okay, not just for ourselves, but for the church, that we are filled with the Spirit. In other words, there is, there is a fire in our bellies Okay, and there is, and there is power um, in our actions, and there is vision. But we want to, but we'll pray that we that we don't assume that we know what this looks like. I think we assume that we know what it looks like. It looks like something ecstatic, but most of the time it doesn't look like something ecstatic. It looks like people doing very mundane things but you can tell it's a product of the Spirit because they're other people-centred and they have this flavour of Jesus about them. And while we're waiting for the Lord to answer those prayers, what do we do? Well, you keep on praying. And I want to read to you Psalm 27. This came up in my personal times. Because it finishes with a thing about waiting. And I think if you're personally, so if you're in a position where you're praying for something and you're waiting for the Lord to do it, um, and, and quite often uh, I'm really conscious that can be a really painful thing. Waiting for the salvation of your kids. We'll pray about that tonight, okay? Um, stop being proud about it and we'll just be honest that our kids or our other halves or whoever it is uh, are not saved. What do we do? Well, we just cry out like the psalmist. Let me, let me read to you. I think I'll read Psalm 27. I'll read it all. Um, and then we'll pray. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. You can... You can, 
it may seem like waves are breaking all over you um, in this waiting, but you can, you can stand firm in it. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. One thing I do in, in the midst of this trouble is, is I keep asking the Lord that I can stay uh, in his place, stay in fellowship with him, and that in that day of trouble, he will keep me safe. Verse six, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, God my saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Don't hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.